Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Young Americans are dying right now in record numbers by young, in particular, 25 to 34 year olds. That's the group that is dying the most. But in general, 25 to 64 year olds. This started in the 1980s. Right throughout the 1970s, death rates were going down. In the 1980s, death rates started going up very slightly. But it has really picked up recently. And what has really picked it up is, in my opinion, the Reagan revolution. We have now reached full Reagan revolution. In 1981, he started out destroying workers' rights, destroying unions, which, of course, as people lost union jobs, they lost health care and things like that. And this year, for the first time in generations now, the number of Americans who are, quote, middle class, the number of Americans who are defined as middle class by our government statistics for the first time since the 1940s has dropped below 50%. We're not even a majority middle class country anymore. We're a majority poor country now. And when you look at, you know, and this is the result of, of Reagan, the Reagan revolution, changing our tax code. There have been six major tax cuts since Reagan's first one. And what this has done is it has transferred something on the order of six or seven trillion dollars out of the wealth of the middle class. Used to be, you know, being middle class, I mean, back in the 60s, 70s, eight, even, the, or even the 80s before Reaganism really sunk in, you know, people have bought a house, they bought a car, sometimes they had a second house or a vacation home, they took vacations. That was the, that was the American dream, being middle class. It's gone. And now we're learning from this new report from the Journal of the American Medical Association that for three years in a row, which I think coincides with Republicans taking over the White House and Republicans refusing to expand Medicaid, but for three years in a row, death rates for young people, 25 to 54-year-olds, uh, 25 to 34, has been exploding, while the death rate for Americans 25 to 64 years old, Americans, people in the prime of their lives, has been continuously increasing. There's an article about this in the New York Times by Gina Colada and Tabrina Tavernis. As the life expectancy of Americans has declined over a period of three years, the focus has been on the plight of white Americans, they write, but a new analysis that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association yesterday extended, said that the increased death rates among people in midlife extend to all racial groups, all ethnic groups, suburbs, and cities. Even though the whole story that we've been hearing is it's rural, poor rural white people uh, overdosing on narcotics. No, it's not narcotics. I mean, you know, drug overdoses certainly are a problem, uh, along with suicides and alcoholism, which have also all been going up since we went into Reaganomics. They'd all been on a steady decline from the 30s to the 70s. And then starting in the 80s, they all started going back up again. And because, you know, basically Reagan stepped in and said, we're going to destroy the middle class. 
But the leading causes of death are not just suicides, drug overdoses, and alcoholism. They're heart disease, strokes, and, and COPD. Now, COPD is typically the result of smoking, heart disease, and strokes. Uh, you know, huge dietary pieces to those things. In fact, if you haven't seen this amazing new documentary over on Netflix produced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's called Game Changers. And it's just an hour-long documentary. It's, it's short. You can watch it. It's mind-boggling. I mean, Louise and I sat there with one of our kids just slack-jawed in amazement. And it's about the impact that diet has on your health and what the optimal diet is for human beings and all the science on it. And they showed the strongest man on earth and the fastest man on earth, all this amazing stuff. You know, that's a piece of it because our food now contains half the nutrients it did in 1950, our vegetables. This is the result of factory farming. And processed food is filled with chemicals that are killing us. But the side that seems to be driving this increase in mortality is that people lack access to health care. It's like this one very, very simple thing, along with increased poverty. Stephen Wolf of uh, Virginia Commonwealth University is the lead author of this study that was published yesterday in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He said, the whole country is at a health disadvantage compared to other wealthy nations. We're the only country in the world where this is happening. The only developed country, the only, quote, wealthy country in the world. And if more than half of our citizens are now poor, I'm not sure how we can even call ourselves a, a wealthy country any longer. We've got a bunch of billionaires. We've got more billionaires than anybody else on earth. But anyhow, he goes on to say, this is in this, this, the study's lead author, Dr. Stephen Wolf. He says, we are losing people in the most productive period of their lives. Children are losing parents. Employers have a sicker workforce. He says, despite the fact that the United States has the highest per capita health spending in the world, that was from an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we're having this problem. Now, interestingly, and the thing that seems to point to it being access to health care, which is still not available in most red states, they note in the New York Times piece, death rates are actually improving among children and older Americans. If you're under 12 or under 18, or if you're over 65, people who are under 18 and over 65, they're actually living longer now. Why? Because if you're under 18, you qualify for Medicaid if you're poor. And if you're over 65, you qualify for Medicare. As the New York Times article notes, death rates are actually improving among children and older Americans, Dr. Wolf noted, perhaps because they have more reliable health care, Medicaid for many children and Medicare for older people. The states with the highest relative increases in death rates among young and middle-aged adults, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, West Virginia, and Ohio, five of them red states, fully a third of the worst death rate states are in four states. Red states that have not expanded Medicaid, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Indiana. Now, it's possible Ohio has expanded it. I'm, I, I don't recall, but Dr. Wolf says, we need to look at the root causes. Something changed in the 1980s. This is the lead author of this study in the, new, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and he's saying something changed in the 1980s, which is when the growth in our life expectancy began to slow down compared to other wealthy nations. Well, gee, what happened in the 1980s? We changed our economic system, and we changed our political system. We went from Keynesian economics under Franklin Roosevelt through every president right on through, including LBJ with the Great Society, and, and a political system where politicians answered to the people and gave the people what they want. And I think the Great Society is a great example of that. Obviously, you look at uh, the New Deal, FDR, in the 1930s, and people say, well, yeah, he did that because of the Great Depression. He had to do that. But LBJ, we had no Great Depression going on in 1964, you know, 5, 6, 7, 8 when LBJ passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and then all these great society programs, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, aid to uh, families with dependent children, expanding uh, to, you know, uh, Title IX or 10, whichever it is, housing, expanding housing for low-income people. I mean, all, Lyndon Johnson cut poverty in half in a decade in the United States with the great society. But 20 years later, more than half of those, those programs were either gone or, or gutted, essentially. So here is this 
you know, world-famous physician running this study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And, and he doesn't understand what happened in the 1980s. He says it's a worrying pattern. He said, we used to be much more similar. What he's talking about is, you know, region to region around the United States and poor people and, and wealthy people in terms of health outcomes. He says, we used to be much more similar even when I was in college in the early 1970s, but now we're pulling apart. We haven't really explained what's gone wrong and what to do about it. Well, I can tell you what's gone wrong. Ronald Reagan, Reaganomics. Reaganomics is still the economic and political system that we are operating under. Bill Clinton declared Reaganomics. The, you know, the era of big government as we know it is over. Welfare as we know it is ended. This is where we're at. Peak Reaganomics right now. And it is killing off our young Americans. Not our youngest, they're covered by Medicaid. But working age Americans, 25 to 64, dying at rates that you do not see in any other developed country in the world, yet we literally pay more than twice as much per person for health care in the United States than any other country in the world. And meanwhile, Donald Trump is trying to force the Brits to privatize their national health service. Brilliant. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There is this amazing story that I mentioned briefly. Jeremy Corbyn, who is the Bernie Sanders of the United Kingdom, the leader of the Labor Party now, he says, we're having secret talks about a deal with Donald Trump after Brexit. He just released 451 pages of documents from talks from July of 2017 to just a few months ago. There's two main things in the discussions. Number one, they want them to basically take apart or privatize the National Health Service. And number two, they want longer patents for prescription drugs. And Jeremy Corbyn says longer patents can mean only one thing, more expensive drugs. Lives will be put at a risk as a result of this. And he pointed out uh, one drug, Humira. It's used to treat Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. It suppresses the immune system. He said, quote, it costs our National Health Service 1,400 pounds a packet. In the U.S., the same packet costs 8,000 pounds. Get the difference, 1,000 pounds in our NHS, 8,000 pounds in the USA. One of the reasons for U.S., this is, I'm still quoting Jeremy Corbyn, one of the reasons for U.S. drug prices being on average 250% higher than they are here in the U.K. is a patent regime rigged for the big pharmaceutical companies. And he said, let's be frank, the U.S. is not going to negotiate to sell its own medicines for less. No, they're negotiating. We are negotiating. The Trump administration is negotiating to raise drug prices. And not just in the U.K. This is also part of this new NAFTA deal, the, the, you know, with Mexico and Canada to extend drug You're patents. listening to the Tom Hartman program. It's amazing the damage that these guys are doing to our country, the, these so-called conservatives, these Reaganistas, these Trumpistas. We'll be back with your thoughts. Just the most bizarre thing is kind of breaking the internet right now. Yesterday afternoon, Donald Trump posted, he didn't even retweet somebody else. He posted a photograph of Sylvester Stallone as Rocky with his own head photoshopped onto it. At a rally in Florida, he said, people want to know why I went to the doctor or went to the hospital without my tie on. And I'm watching this going, why is he bringing this up? And he says, well, of course I went without my tie on. I went to the hospital. And what's the first thing they say? Open up your shirt. And then here's the exact quote. He said, take off. He says, this is his doctor speaking to him at the hospital. Right? Take off your shirt, sir, and show us that gorgeous chest. We've never seen a chest quite like it. Yeah. There's, there's something. Oh, my God. There's <laughs> some. Something very strange going on here. I mean, very strange. Anyhow, John in Austin, Texas. Hey, John, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind? How are you, sir? I'm great, um, but I'll get better. How about you? Yeah, uh, man, I'm terrific. I, I, I want to say this before I say anything. I wish that I had the book writing prowess that you had, because if I did, I would articulate this and put it in the book, but maybe it can inspire you to do so instead. When you were talking about the uh, Reagan tax cuts and the inequality, 
I think that you can directly or indirectly pretty much attribute all of the ills, well, most of the ills that we have in this country, everything from when you were talking about the obesity, the fact that people cannot afford to eat good food and, right. and they're eating at McDonald's and becoming... Obesity is one of the major consequential diseases associated with poverty. Exactly. And when you, t I mean, something, you know, there have always been drug use. But the way that it's going on in West Virginia with the opioids, you know, those people are distraught, you know, and, uh, you know, that's how they treat their their uh, their depression. Yep. You know, when, when you get right down to it, you can you can almost attribute almost everything, even school shootings. These people feel despair. They have not a whole lot of options as far as taking care of the issues that they have. So they retaliate in these ways. Some well, if I can add, add something some to that, John, in order to distract us from the way that the billionaire class, and the big corporations are are basically stealing all of our wealth via Reaganomics, in order to distract us from that so we don't turn our ire against the billionaires as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have tried to do and, and you know, are, are struggling to break through the media to do. In order to distract us, they've turned us against each other. They've told us that the problem, as it were, the cause of our ills was brown people coming from Mexico or black people who want to, who want to take white people's jobs or immigrants who, you know, or Muslims or, I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? That has been what the Republican Party has been telling us ever since 1981 back to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thus we're shooting uh, each other in our schools and all these other things. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah but I think that it's all, when you get down to it, the, the depression, I grew up in a very bad neighborhood of Washington, D.C. The reality is that we only saw very, very small amounts of people coming into those neighborhoods buying drugs. Drugs are so prolific now in our society, you know, whether illegal or legal. And I think it's people just dulling their senses. They're dulling the things that they're going through. Everything from drugs to school shootings to obesity, all of that is through corporate influence, income inequality, and the tax structure that we face, the destruction of the middle class. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And massive medical debt and massive educational debt, things that used to be no big deal. You know, people people my age remember the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when, you know, getting sick didn't cause you to become bankrupt. Now it does. And, and lack of education. Yeah, it and going to college together. didn't leave you with, you know, two decades worth of debt so that you couldn't buy a house or get married or have kids or anything. John, spot on. Thank you. Very, very well said. And in fact, Michael Sainato, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, wrote this brilliant piece that's in The Guardian. It's called, I Live on the Street, this is the headline, I Live on the Street Now, How Americans Fall into Medical Bankruptcy. They, he starts out with the story of this woman from West Palm Beach, Florida. Her name is Suzanne LeClaire. And he says she was first diagnosed with cancer. And before her first cancer-related surgery, LeClaire was told by the hospital that they accepted her employer-based health insurance. And this is the scam this private health insurance thing that Trump wants Boris Johnson to inflict on the United Kingdom. He quotes Suzanne LeClaire. She was told by the hospital she's going to have cancer surgery, right? She's told by the hospital, yes, your insurance is good here. She said, I paid my $300 copay. After the surgery, I started receiving all these invoices and came to find out that the only thing covered was my bed because the hospital was out of network. My bills were hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I had no choice but to file bankruptcy. And then they, they, they're quoting, you know, uh, other people. She's got, an, this is another one. My medical bills are at $52,000. I've done everything from credit cards to consolidation loans. I just keep simply paying one credit card with another interest-free until I can pay the next one. It's the side of cancer most people don't understand or know about, and it's never ending. And it keeps adding up and adding up. And before you know it, you're back in debt so bad you can't believe it again. Um, I, on the way to work today, I walked past two cars parked on the side of the street in which people were sleeping. And one of them, clearly, this guy had everything he owned in his car. It was a beater. I mean, it was just a, a wreck. And one of, the, one of the other ones was a fairly nice car. People living in their cars. And I don't live in a poor part of town. I mean, this... This is the United States of America. We're supposed to be the middle-class beacon for the world. We're supposed to be the kind of, the, you know, the country that sort of invented this with Franklin Roosevelt during the worldwide Great Depression in the 30s. We raised up 
the middle class. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you could go to college for free pretty much anywhere in the United States. They're so cheap that you could work your way through college on a part-time job. My wife worked her way through college. She actually completed her education. I didn't, but she worked, you know, as a waitress at Howard Johnson's. And I think that, you know, it was like a buck fifty an hour or something back in the day. The short time that I was in college, I paid for it by pumping gas and, and replacing tires at an Exxon station, or an Esso station it was called then, and uh, washing dishes at Bob's Big Boy. You can't do that now. You end up massively in debt. And where is all that money going? It's going to the top 1%, period, full stop. And, and in a huge, huge way. In fact, this is, here we go, this from Meteor Blades over at Daily Kos. The University of California Berkeley economist Gabriel Zuckman says the total wealth of the 400 richest Americans jumped from 1.27 trillion to $2.96 trillion over the last 10 years. The tax rate fell from 27% to 23%. Now, I pay more than 23% taxes, but I'm not a billionaire or a millionaire or a trillionaire or whatever. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just, this is mind boggling. The top income tax rates were slashed six times since 1980. This all began with Reagan. And we're still in Reaganomics. We've had you know, three or four Republican presidents and two Democratic presidents who have all said, yeah, okay, Reaganomics, we'll stay with that. And we have a small chance, a very small chance, that this will all change with this election. And I sure hope so, because frankly, people's lives are at stake. Yvette in El Sobrante, California. Hey, Yvette, what's up? I was wondering if you could clarify for me why Roger Stone gets to go home till he gets sentenced in February. Because he's a rich white guy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you bet. It's, it's a white yeah. collar crime. If a poor person of color, you know, steals a candy bar, they end up in jail. But if a rich white guy, you know, conspires to take down the United States of America and destroy our reputation around the world, oh yeah, you can go home for a couple of months while, you, while we figure out if you're gonna be sentenced. Um, it's it's crazy, but but that's that's our that's our system, and and frankly, Reaganomics doubled down on that too, and and this is one of the reasons I think you know one of the really good suggestions that's coming out of the Democratic debates, and there's not enough discussion about it. I believe that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are both supporting an end to the bail system. I'm pretty sure that uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren also support that, and that's just a starting point. This whole criminal justice reform it was actually white collar crime reform. It made it easier for CEOs Your to get. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Seriously, this legislation that was bipartisan it had mens rea in it. It had, you know, the intent of the person so that CEOs wouldn't go to jail for their crimes. Oh, we all love that holiday seasons, don't we? Family, friends, pictures, videos, all that kind of stuff, uh, capturing every laugh and smile and wrinkle and crow's feet and, oh, no, all those telltale signs of aging front and center on your holiday cards and your pictures. But imagine that they're gone, poof, in minutes, without Photoshop. No risky, expensive surgery. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. Don't believe it? Try it. You look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them, including that judgmental family member. You know who I'm talking about. Just in time for the holidays, go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use my code Hartman at checkout. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's Tom Hartman Book Club is by Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey K. Take hold of our history. Make America radical again. This is from the introduction. On December 1st, 1862, in the midst of the Civil War, just weeks before he was to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln delivered his annual message to Congress. Lincoln firmly believed that the United States had an historic responsibility to demonstrate to the world that people can govern themselves. 
make equal rights not just a self-evident truth, but a manifest one, and create a political and economic order in which working people, both white and black, are not compelled to bow to anyone, neither aristocrats nor capitalists. Empowered by tens of thousands of black slaves who were already liberating themselves from bondage by escaping to the Union lines, and increasingly confident that the majority of his fellow Americans would recognize the truth of what he was saying, Lincoln closed his address by calling on them to see that the time had come to remember who they were and what that demanded. He told them that to save the nation and all that it represented, they must live up to the nation's declared revolutionary purpose and promise and act to radically enhance American freedom by bringing an end to slavery. This is a quote from Lincoln's address. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. End of quote from Lincoln. Back to Harvey. We too cannot escape history. Our own struggle to save the nation and the promise it proclaims has begun. Finally, after more than 40 years of fear-driven class war and culture war campaigns against the democratic achievements of generations, the hard-won rights of workers, women and people of color, and the very memory of how they were secured, and now both in the wake of the election debacle of 2016, which gave the presidency to the corrupt, mendacious, racist, sexist, and treacherous demagogue Donald Trump, and continued control of Congress to the formerly conservative but increasingly reactionary Republican Party, and in the face of intensified class and culture war campaigns, we the people have come not only to recognize that American democratic life is in jeopardy, but also to mobilize in hopes of saving it. Millions of us have rallied to the resistance and expressed our democratic fears and desires in action. In the historic Women's March and March for Our Lives of Young People, the protests, demonstrations, and legal actions to defend the lives and rights of immigrants and refugees, the Me Too movement to combat sexual assault and harassment, the massive teacher strikes for higher pay and better funding of public schools in states red and blue, and the enthusiastic canvassing and campaigning for a blue wave to win back Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. But resistance is not enough. The time has come for us to remember who we are and what that demands. The time has come for us to embrace our radical history. The history of how a generation of Americans, high and low, and in all their diversity, not only turned their colonial rebellion into a war for independence, but also imbued American life, whether they all intended it or not, with radical imperative and impulse by declaring a revolutionary promise of freedom, equality, and democracy for all by acting to make the United States, both inspired by Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and pushing them to go farther than they might otherwise have gone, radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. The time has come to take hold of that history and make America radical again. I've titled this collection of my speeches and essays, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, for reasons that will become obvious. And yet I cannot help but confess that if I had had to title it otherwise, I would have been sorely tempted to use, with full attribution, the title Max Lerner gave to his 1938 work, It Is Later Than You Think, The Need for a Militant Democracy. While it may not seem so, the crisis we face is no less demanding of action urgent action than that which confronted his generation. The book Take Hold of Our History by Harvey J.K. Uh, let's see here. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, what's up? Yeah, I, I just saw uh, an article from Inquisitor, I-N-Q-U-I-S-T-R, mm -hmm. 
that's claiming that President Barack Obama will, is willing to intervene in the Democratic primary to stop Bernie Sanders from winning. That was in the New York Times and yesterday, too. I, really? I, yeah. I had a hard time believing President Obama would it, go that it's, far. It's a, never, it is, well, hang on just a second. Let me, let me just give you the qualification. Obama has not made a public statement. What has happened is that somebody, I don't have the article in front of me, so I can't give you the specific quote, but, but somebody who would know said that in a private meeting, perhaps with a group of you know, Democratic donors or Democratic bigwigs or rich people or whatever, Obama said words to the effect of, if Bernie really starts catching fire, then I'll put a stop to it. That's not a verbatim quote, but the actual quote is there in the paper. And, and it's in the mainstream media as well as in, in the, you know, the lefty press. And you know, yeah. Obama has not come out and said, no, I didn't say that. Oh, that's kind of scary. I don't like that. I don't either. I, I, I'm, I'm extremely offended by it. But, you know, yeah. uh, but let's let's give it a couple of days and see if Obama comes out and says, no, 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 I'm being misquoted or something like that. Well, um, I, I've never seen him attack anybody like that. Like, he's not a Trump, you know? That's right. It, and it he's seems never out of character. even endorsed anybody. Yeah, yeah it, it seems out of character. Out Although of character. he did he did give that speech last week where he said America doesn't, you know, America wants, what was the word? A recalibration, not revolution. The recalibration wasn't the word, but it was a word that very much, you know, whose meaning is very much like that. In other words, we want incremental change. We don't want big change, which I oh. took to mean that he's opposed to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, or at least the kinds of programs that they're promoting, which disappointed me tremendously. But that was a public speech. Susan, I got to move oh. along, but thank you for the call. Debbie in Northbrook, Illinois. Hey, Debbie, what's up? Governments are going to sue. The producers of the opioid medications, blaming them for people's addictions. Right. And I have a problem with that. And sort of my friends that I know legitimately use opioids for their health. Right. I, in in I my opinion, well, I was just going to say, in my opinion, the people in the in the Virginias and the in the southeast, they don't have jobs. Right. What else have they do with their time? It's, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I saw addiction back then. Yeah, with so the, They're depressed and they're trying to escape reality with opioids. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think that we've reached peak insanity with regard to this, Debbie. Uh, you know, A, yes, you've got, you've got some folks who are basically using opioids to just soothe the pain of living in the post-Reagan United States. Um, you know, the deindustrialized United States, you know, is Reagan who brought us the free trade deals, too, which wiped out our jobs. Um, but, but I would say it goes beyond that. There are people who legitimately need narcotics, or opioids is the new word. It was narcotics when I was growing up. Um, uh, there are people who legitimately need them. And we've gone insane around this. Most of the people who are dying from opioid uh, overdoses are not dying from drugs that are prescribed to them. They're dying from fentanyl that's being mailed into the United States through the U.S. Postal Service from China. And, and, uh, you know, it's, and it's being sold illegally on our streets. But we're at peak insanity. Um, Louise, my wife had had dental, you know, had some work done in dental surgery or whatever you want. It wasn't surgery; it was a regular dentist office thing. But you know, left her in a lot of pain, and uh, it was only going to last a day or two. You know, it happens after you have 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 work done. And he gave her a prescription for like f these little five milligram. Uh, it wasn't even oxycodone; it was some other narcotic, but just the lowest dose possible. You know, complete with Tylenol or whatever it is added to it. She goes to fill it at the drugstore, and the and the and the pharmacist is like, "Well, let me tell you how to use this drug. This is a potent narcotic." And Louise is like, "Well, I've taken this before." And the woman is like, "You have." Really? Uh, and all of a sudden, she's being grilled like she's some kind of junkie or something. She's like, no, you don't get to be my age without having taken a painkiller once or twice in your life. Um, you know, I mean, she's had surgery. Um, but there, it's just, it's, I, I think we've reached peak insanity. Um, anyway, continuing. Martin in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey, Martin, what's up? I was interested in what you were saying about um, about Britain and about uh, the, the British government conspiring with the Trump presidency to have the National Health Service taken over. Uh, I've been uh, warning my friends and family in the UK for 
probably a decade or more that this was going to happen, and the pro- and the proof is uh, out yesterday with this uh, report. Yeah. And uh, I think it was fairly obvious that this was going to happen. But people in America might think, well, why is the British? Why are the British people giving this up? Why are they allowing the National Health Service to be put in such jeopardy? But what people might not realize in in the U.S. is that the U.K. has no liberal press. There is one newspaper in the whole of the country that could be considered liberal, which is The Guardian. Every single other newspaper and the BBC is fully behind the Conservative Party. More now than ever before. You know what I think the turning point was, Martin? I think the turning point was when Rupert Murdoch bought the Times of London. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think I think that's true, but you know, ultimately, you know, uh, p- people in Britain laugh and point at America with the stupid retired, or the, stu- the stupid president that you have, and I say to the people back in Britain, you know, don't laugh and point because you've got somebody who is possibly worse in, uh, as British Prime Minister right now, and it looks like he's going to waltz in back into Parliament with with a majority on on December thirteenth, yeah. which he doesn't have now, by the way, and Britain is going to be in a whole world of hurt that they're absolutely not prepared for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and the lesson for Americans out of this should be, uh, while we still have some modicum of, of, uh, uh, of something that resembles a representative democracy, is control who controls the media. Exactly. Because that's exactly. what happened in the UK. You had, a, control. you had, when you had diversity in your media, you had um, you know, a government and the, the functioned really, really well and strong unions and functional railroads and everything. And then and then, you know, Murdoch comes over and starts buying up right wing, me- buying up media and flipping a right wing. And and then, boom, you know, everything, you know, Margaret Thatcher on down. Exactly. Yeah. Martin, thank you very much for the call. And then Murdoch comes to the United States. I mean, this is why the prime minister of Australia, the former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, just a few months ago, wrote an op ed in the Sydney Morning Herald titled Rupert Murdoch is the cancer that infects Australian democracy. David in Canterbury, Connecticut. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? My ears perked up, Tom. I, I, I sit here as I watch you, you know, being retired. And my, I was reading a book, and my ears perked up when you're talking about going into a drugstore and putting in a prescription for a painkiller. Right. And, and, and the beef, uh, I guess your wife was getting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Tom, because I, this is my experience, Tom. I'm I'm a chronic pain patient, and I've had chronic arthritic pain good part of my life, and I have been on narcotics, prescribed narcotics for years, Tom. I don't consider myself an addict. Actually, I've been sober from alcohol for 37 years. It gives me a quality of life, Tom. I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a produce grower. I grow a lot of produce where I can actually have be strong enough and free of pain to pursue these things. Yeah. And 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 I go and I've gotten this in a, in a, in the pharmacy. You know the the side looks, uh, the, the, the glares, the questions. I had to fill out a form. You know, there's people waiting behind me. I'm saying, my God, this is. You know, they're, they're turning me into. Uh, into, into one or the other. This whole opioid narrative, Tom, uh, it sort of reminds me of what they were, they were alluding to in terms of what uh, you know, the, the Trump people are trying to do with our minds. You know, they're, they're, they're making, uh, they're turning us into something to be feared. That's what I, have, I have a relative. And yes. I don't I don't want to name which relative because I just don't want to out him on the air. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he wants this talked about, but he is a very, very close relative of mine. And um, he has uh, severe arthritis throughout his body and had for several years and was on pain pills and they said uh, we got to get you off these pain kills pills we're going to give you this yeah. chemotherapy instead uh, yeah. that's going to deaden your nerves. The chemo destroyed his nervous system to the point that he doesn't feel pain any longer and he's constantly burning himself and it suppressed his immune system to the point that he can't go outside any longer he can't hang out with crowds of people and it's just destroyed his life whereas when he was just on the pain pills i mean you know he was on pain pills (laughs) big deal it's It's like they they are going i mean we have gone full bat guano crazy hysteric about about this stuff and it's good to hear you say that because this is my life to to be made into like like i said like one one of the others because i because i do this i've never asked for anything stronger i take the the number tylenol number three that's what you were alluding yeah that's what i was talking about that's what it was tylenol with codeine right and and codeine by the way is a very low dose narcotic when i was a kid you could buy codeine over the counter 
Yes. I mean, it, it was, it was in all the cough syrups. And it helps me. And I have a quality of life that I can sit here in, in no pain and have a conversation with you, Tom. Yeah. And yeah so exactly. I just want you to know there are many thousands and thousands of people like me in America. Don't be afraid of us. You know, we're, well, we're, the, the people you need to tell that to are the pharmacists and the physicians. I mean, you know, when I had my back surgery in D.C. four years ago, my doctor, in order to prescribe me narcotics, she she was just like, oh, my God, you know, and, and this was this was codeine. This was, you know, five or ten milligram codeine tablets. I Listen, mean, Tom, my wife's a cancer patient. She's recovering. She has a lot of pain. She gets crap, Tom. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is nuts. This is nuts. These are legitimate drugs. Uh, David, thank, thank you, you for the call. You you know, keep keep speaking out. I'll keep speaking out too, because you know we need to stop the fentanyl, and we need to stop the poverty that causes people to turn to prescription medications, whether they're pain pills or Valiums. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, I don't know what this Stockholm syndrome people have with their insurance companies, but no one makes the moral argument. How many lives does your plan save? Well, and Bill, Bill let's, your- let's, let's just be real clear about something. The only people who are saying that Americans love their health insurance companies are politicians who take money from health insurance companies. I have never, I've been doing this show 15 years, I have never had somebody call in and say, I love my health insurance company. Have you ever heard that from anybody? No, but I've heard people freaking out because they might lose a private health insurance company. They don't understand the alternative is for people to live. And most of these countries that have socialized medicine are democracies. They can change it any time they want. You're absolutely right, Bill. And, and yeah, people freak out if they think they're going to lose their, quote, health insurance because that's the phrase that's used. But what they're going to actually get is a better health insurance program, one that's paid for by the government. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mike in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Mike, what's up? Okay, so my wife and I went over to uh, Europe a few months ago on a tour. You know, on a tour. You know, I've never been there before. My wife hadn't. You know, we're just people. We're no celebrities or, you know, special people. We went on this tour. So we went over to London three days before the tour started. And we're there in the hotel. And as soon as I got there, I realized I'm diabetic. I realized that I left my metformin at home. Uh-oh. And I need, I need the metformin. We're going to be there three weeks. You know, so I tried to call Kaiser to get a prescription set to, to Britain, to a pharmacy that was up the street. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, my wife got sick. And she was throwing up, throwing up, throwing up. So the pharmacist said to go to Charing Cross Hospital, go to urgent care. I went to urgent care. Ten minutes. I was in there ten minutes. They saw me. I showed my ID. My wife just said ID. They saw me ten minutes. The doctor that was there writing up a prescription for me. I took it to the pharmacist. He gave me a month supply of metformin and some some stuff for my wife's nausea. All for nothing. Didn't cost me one cent. The only thing it cost me was an eight-pound charge. They charge everybody for a prescription for it goes to national health, right, which is like ten bucks. And it's a one-time fee, you know. Yeah, we had the, we had a very similar experience. Uh, I was uh, speaking at uh, King's College in London. This was 15 years ago. I was giving a speech on ADHD, and Louise and I were traveling, and we were taking our youngest child with us, our, our youngest our, our youngest daughter, and she had this, and she was like at the time 11, 12 years old, and she had an awful ear infection. So I got back from the speech, and it was like 11:30 at night, and we were staying with a family with some with some people who were uh, local ADHD activists. And, you know, and she was like in, in tears. She was my, uh, my daughter in so much pain for the ear infection. And so the people we were staying with, they said, well, let's call the let's call the surgery. They call it, you know, the local doctor's office. And so they called the local doctor's office and put me on the phone. And, and I described the symptoms. And he says, he says, where are you? And, and I gave him the address. And he said, well, I'll be over there in about 10 minutes. And I was like, what? 
And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm about to get off the clock here at midnight. And so I'll just stop at your place on my way home and I'll, and I'll see your, do your daughter. And I'm like, okay. He comes over, he checks out our daughter. He says, oh yeah, she's got a pretty bad ear infection. He pulls out of his doctor bag, a uh, 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 blister pack of, I think it was amoxicillin. It was one of those simple, straightforward, broad spectrum antibiotics. Gives them to Louise and says, here, you know, give her two tablets right now and then one every six hours or eight hours or whatever it was. And he was just so nice. You know, he was this young guy. He was in his 30s, I guess. And when he was all done, I was like, what do I owe you? And he said, oh, there's no charge for this. <laughs> yeah, what is, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm amazed that people want to go, the world wants to go to our system? Right. And want, I want to go to their system. Right. And Donald Trump and Theresa May have been negotiating a deal where they're going to blow up the National Health it. Service of the United it. Kingdom and replace it with for-profit health insurance companies and extend the, the patent length of prescription drugs so that, their, so that their price will go up. I'm with you, Mike. I'm completely with you. I mean, this it is insane what we have been doing in this country, and it is insane that any other country would want to become like us in this regard. Mike, thank you for the call. We had a caller a couple of months ago with just an absolutely amazing story. And it was such an amazing story. I wanted to get him back on. And I mean, he hasn't written a book or anything, but just had this extraordinary experience of moving to China to live the American dream. His name is Kurt Kelly. And Kurt has a Twitter handle over at Kurt Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y 11. And, uh, you know, you can tweet him and say hi, whatever. Kurt, welcome back. How you doing, Tom? Good. Set this up for us. You decided to move to China. Yes. Um, I met a woman in the uh, summer of 16 during the, uh, the presidential, um, oh, uh, d not debate. Yeah, debate, actually, the first presidential debate between Hillary and Bernie. And met Julia, who was a foreign person from Ukraine uh, teaching English in China. <laughs> and uh, I met her there, and through the campaign, of course, I was deeply involved in that, but she moved back to China to teach English, and after the campaign ended, she offered me to go there, and I said, why not? So you end up in China as a teacher of English as a second language. You don't yes. speak Chinese, right? No, right. A, a little bit. She does much better than I do. Yeah. And what you discovered was, I mean, you know, we read these things in the paper that say that the Chinese middle class is larger mm -hmm. than the entire population of the United States. That, yes. you know, some 70% of Chinese now, Chinese millennials, 70% of Chinese millennials now own their own homes. You know, Absolutely. Whereas home ownership among millennials here in the United States is, is below 40%, I believe. I'm, I'm pulling these numbers out of memory. And what did you experience? What did you learn? What did you see when you were there? Well, I, I knew the numbers of China before I went there. I knew their GDP. I knew how they're middle class. And yes, the nominal number is larger than the American population. But research data to compare to on-the-ground data are sometimes different. But they weren't in this case. You can see it. In the culture, you can see it in their spending habits, how much they're out, and and doing commerce. Right. It's it's much more vibrant. So than so even here in New York City. Right. So historically, we've defined the American dream as uh, as the life my dad had. You know, he worked in a tool Absolutely. and die shop for forty years. He was able to retire with a pension. He was able to take a couple of weeks of vacation every year. He was able to buy a new car every three years. He put mm -hmm. four, he raised four kids and put them through school. He could buy his own home, which was fully paid off by the time he retired. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the pension rolled over to my mom when my dad died. That good, comfortable life with a single breadwinner working a forty-hour week, being able to to not just have mm -hmm. a decent life, but to have a really good and comfortable life, a safe life, to, yeah. to have savings, to plan for the future. Now, today, about half of the American population literally cannot deal with a $400 emergency. So the American dream has really slipped in the United States since the 1980s, since, the, since we left the economic policies of John Maynard Keynes and Franklin Roosevelt and adopted the, the economic policies of Milton Friedman, the Chicago School, what's sometimes referred to as neoliberal economics. And both Democrats and Republicans have been fine with this since 1980. And it's just eviscerated the American middle class. How did you find the American dream in China? What, what, what told you that the American dream now exists in China? When it comes, I'm a mathematical engineer person, so I like to put things down to an equation. And the American middle class, I've, I've researched, and the equation basically is to qualify as middle class, you have to qualify for a few things. Number one, and most important, all your bills have to be paid and current, okay, 100% current. 
then you have to be able to put 10% into savings. And then you have to, on top of all that, you have to have 30% of your expendable income. To where if you wanted to, you could burn it if you wanted to or, you know, put it into saving or retirement. Then on top of all that, you need the time element, okay? If you work more than 45 hours a week, you're no longer middle class. You're working middle class. Mm -hmm. If you work above 50, 55, 60 hours a week, you can't even qualify for working middle class. Now you're just a time slave. Right. So, so, so it's an equation. And in China, I was able to fulfill the time part. Here in America, being a single man with no children and being a geotech engineer, I'm okay financially. But the time-wise, I'm a time slave working 70, 80, 90 hours a week. Right. And we're seeing that. You know, it's, it, if you look at household income from 1980 to today, it's, it's up about 10%. But that's household yeah. income. That's, you know, <laughs> mom, dad, and, and, and one of the kids. And, and back in 1980, we had an average of 1.3 people in the workforce from every household. And now it's... And now it's slightly over two, as I recall. Um, exactly. So, yes. so tell me about your neighbor. In China, my neighbor Rosaline. She uh, met me in the hallway when she saw me, horribly excited. A child, an American lives on her floor. We started talking. She learned I was an English teacher. She immediately told me. She told me, "You'll be teaching my daughter now for private English lessons for three to four hours a week, sometimes all day on Saturday, for forty U.S. dollars an hour." So she could afford she, to pay you forty bucks an hour to teach her daughter English. She yeah. owned her apartment. Owned it. I don't mean American owned, like bank owned. I mean own owned. Matter of fact, a lot of Chinese owned their first home outright, and they may mortgage their investment property. But she owned that. She owned a small SUV, and she was able to take her family down to Macau, China, for a week, which is the Las Vegas of China in the South, to, uh, for vacation. So where did she work that she had a cool enough job that she could afford to buy an apartment in a fancy high-rise in Beijing? Not the fancy high-rise yet. This was my first apartment, but it was okay. a nice apartment. Nice apartment, okay. And, and um, you know, she had a car, and she could take vacations, and it was all paid off and everything. What was this incredible job that she had? Well, she didn't tell me where she worked. I ran into her where she worked, down at the local mall next to my house, the Roosevelt Mall. Yes, the Roosevelt Mall. And she worked at McDonald's. As the manager? No, she just worked at McDonald's on the floor. <laughs> so she was, she was ringing up burgers for a yes. living. Yes, because they make about 115 RMB an hour. I don't know the exchange rate today. I think the RMB has gone up, actually. It's about $16.04. So she was making, yeah. And she made hobbies at home. But the fact is she was able to live a life, and she didn't work as a slave. She worked and lived a decent little life. Right. Now, yeah. we, you know, the, the main story that we hear in American media is about, you know, people at Foxconn who are trying to throw themselves off the roof of buildings because they're, they're you know, yes. you know, they're so horrified that they have to, you know, they're basically slave labor. Mm -hmm. How does that story contrast with your next door neighbor who was working at McDonald's and living a middle class life? No. Does that exist? Yes. Does that's all real? and things like that. The Chinese do talk about that. When I'm overseas, I don't just talk about the nice things to do. I like to talk to the older people, understand how things have changed, and really get into the nuances of their culture. Right. So does that exist and has that existed? Yes, that is true. China does have their problems, but they're doing their best to grow a very vibrant middle class. There is a pretty decent disconnect between their middle class and their still working army poor. But the fact is they're able to create that where we don't have a massive disconnect. Our middle class is really eh, more debt slaves, and then the working poor is just true working poor. When you, when you moved to a nicer apartment building, did you encounter more similar stories to this, people who were just working average jobs, who were, who were you know, had, had the kind of life my dad had, the middle class life? Right. Well, my, my next apartment was in um, Hongxi High, or in Kaipai Chu, um, and my neighbors literally drove Rolls Royces and GTRs and Bentleys and ZR1s. So those were the professionals. Those were the owner class things like that. My next door neighbor, who I became truly good friends with and still is, Whiskey, that's his call sign. He plays Call of Duty a lot. And um, he's a economics professor at the University of Deliang. So Now, a professor in the United States would not earn enough money to drive a Rolls Royce or a Bentley. No, but he's married to a plastic surgeon. I guess maybe a plastic surgeon could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, so that, so, so that was the upper middle class, and but even even the upper middle class in the United States typically, uh, you know, doesn't have Rolls Royces and Bentleys. I mean, they, they may have a Cadillac, but 
And there were plenty of Cadillacs too, right? But yeah. there, there were plenty of just very, very well-off people around me. And it was a beautiful apartment for $528 a month. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I'm not I'm not saying America needs to lower their prices. We need to raise wages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you lowering know. prices wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, you know, I was talking earlier about the cartelization of our economy and it's it's very real. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, right across the board. Kurt Kelly. Kurt Kelly. C-U-R-T-K-E-L-L-E-Y 11 is his Twitter handle if you want to engage this conversation. Kurt, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you. Good talking with you. Tim in Houston, Texas. Hey, Tim, what's up? Hey, Tom. Good morning. Hey. <clears throat> I'm calling about the uh, overall scene from about the height of the moon as compared to 30,000 feet in an airplane. We've got the plutocrats versus the people here in the USA, and mm. I was thinking that the people need to adopt just about what the plutocrats have done, which is show them the face of a snarling wolf versus we the people being sheeple and i was wanting to know what you thought from an overall picture standpoint that would be the most effective way to do that and like you know fdr did managed to do in the 30s yeah and in fact here if you here's fdr on taxes a number of my friends who belong in the very high upper bracket have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. And and look at the applause line. So so Elizabeth Warren has pointed out, and Bernie has has made this point, although his uh, wealth tax uh, suggestions are not quite as explicit as hers. She has pointed out that people like me, I own a home. Louise and I have a house. And I don't know if you do, Tim, but, you know, homeowners in the United States, we pay a wealth tax. Every year I have to pay a couple thousand bucks to the city and county or state or whatever it is, whoever I'm paying it to, uh, on my wealth, on my house. I mean, my, uh, my principal wealth is my home. And as is true of most middle-class people. And every year I have to pay a tax on that wealth. But millionaires, multimillionaires, billionaires, people whose principal wealth is not their home, but it's in their stock portfolio, they do not pay a tax on their wealth. And so all all that uh, Elizabeth Warren is asking, and this is enough to get Mike Bloomberg, Donald Trump is like putting kids in cages, Bloomberg is sound asleep. He's violating the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, uh, Bloomberg is sound asleep. Crime after crime after crime against America and American democracy, and, and Bloomberg, the billionaire, is sound asleep, and then all of a sudden, Elizabeth Warren starts talking about a wealth tax, and oh, Mike Bloomberg is running for president. I mean, I, I heard the this, this same pathetic routine from Donnie Deutsch this morning on MSNBC, another multimillionaire. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's like, oh, Elizabeth Warren. And he says, she's shrill and she's not likable. Yeah, that's what they always say about women politicians. That's what sexist pig men like Donnie Deutsch always say about female politicians. And and thank God, Kareem Jean-Pierre, I'm mangling her name, I'm sure, called him out on it. But I'm so sick of it. We need to have a wealth tax in the United States for the billionaires. We already have a wealth tax for middle-class people. It's called property taxes. But it only applies to your real estate property. Why doesn't it apply to, to a billionaire's stock portfolio? Sasha in Kent, Washington. Hey, Sasha, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Great show today. Thank you. I'm noticing that Facebook has figured out a way to twist and slant the message. Opening Facebook, and there's a choice there that says, comments most relevant and i was just going through the comment thread but then i found if i hover over that it said all comments so i did a comparison and i noticed with most relevant the one they marked as most relevant didn't always have the most likes and i wouldn't see a lot of messages that i agreed with my understanding is what they're doing with the most relevant is they're saying tailored to your, you know, the things that you have liked in the past. I can tailored. understand that, but it wasn't. Um, oh, really? It, so you think yeah. that it's just got a political I, spin to it? I, that's how it felt. Now, funny thing, while I was waiting here online, I turned on Facebook, and my feed is not offering that most relevant today. Huh. <laughs> 
I had written a complaint about that on Facebook because I'd noticed a clear right. twist or slant to it. And so I'm, I'm going, okay, is it just me yeah. or have they changed well, this? Well, I can't, I can't speak to it because Facebook disabled my personal account, so I have That's no idea. I told them, I'm getting ready to quit Facebook because it's devouring my time. There's a lot of people doing that, and, and uh, it's probably a, psychologically a very healthy thing. Sasha, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. We just have to figure out another way to keep in touch with family and friends. You know, like Christmas cards, <laughs> holiday cards. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us, and we'll be back soon. In the meantime, don't forget, Democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. It requires all of us. It's something that, you know, it's pitch in, right? Demo the people, the, the populace. Here we are. So get out there, get active. Share progressive media with your friends. Tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 